Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. January the 14th, 2021. And once again, the headlines are dominated by you-know-who. He's been impeached again. Um, I'm not going to go over that. And actually, we're not going to talk too much about Trump today. But there is some element of Trump, I think, in this conversation. Um, Politico, Robert Harris, who's an excellent writer, suggested that Trump is the perfect leader of the worst generation. Uh, Rather than saying he's the worst president, uh, uh, Harris argues at a minimum, Trump seems secure in his bid to be the worst character ever to inhabit the White House. Uh, We had a lot of shows, of course, about Trump. We had Carlos Lazada, the, uh, the Washington Post uh, book reviewer, who wrote What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era, which was a book about Trump books or books on Trump. We've also thought a little bit about Mary Trump's book, uh, about uh, the upbringing of Trump. C- clearly, Trump was a troubled youth, teenager, and I, indeed he was... Um, sent away at one point, I think, to a military school by his father. So it wouldn't perhaps be inaccurate to call him not only a troubled youth, but certainly a troubled adult and and, and, and unquestionably a troubled president. The issue of being troubled is the theme of this show. We have Kenneth R. Rosen, um, uh, Newsweek's Italy correspondent, uh, who has a new book out called Troubled, the failed promise of America's behavioral treatment programs. He doesn't mention Trump in the book, but I have to start, Ken, um, by mentioning you-know-who. Do you think uh, Trump could have benefited from one of the programs that you describe in your book? I don't think anyone really benefited entirely from those programs, but as a graduate of a military academy myself, that that was a fairly decent experience that I'm surprised he didn't take anything from at least anything beneficial. What's the difference then between um, the military programs you talk about and the the kind of teenage, I, I don't know whether this is the right way of putting it, the, the, the teenage correction programs that you describe in Troubled? The behavior modification, emotional growth schools, the difference between those and uh, military academies, uh, therapy. Um, and then again, military academies are really accredited schools and they can hand out high school diplomas, they can graduate children into uh, college and, and, and post-education at institutions where these programs cannot. Um, yes, at my time at military school, we did a lot of push-ups, did a lot of jumping jacks, marched around a parade field, all fair and well, you sort of know what you're getting into. But with the progr- programs mentioned in Troubled, they're a dark, uncharted territory that parents aren't quite clear on what they're getting their kids into. Here we have the image, Ken, for those people uh, watching as opposed to listening, Deep Springs Ranch for Kids, which actually looks idyllic, the photograph. 
this place was was so controversial and, and unethical that it's actually shut down. Tell me about them. I mean, most people are not familiar with these kinds of institutions. Sure. Um, the programs range from anywhere between anything between a wilderness therapy program, which is sort of an exper uh, experiential expedition into the woods um, with a therapy component, or a therapeutic boarding school where therapy is sort of the, um, the, the, the subject matter itself and then residential lockdown treatment facilities like the one you just pointed to. And, and it, it is something difficult for parents uh, and myself to even swear that they're so bucolic, they're so beautiful, they're so pristine on the outside. Um, but generally speaking, that's not where all the bad things are happening. They're happening behind closed doors. They're happening in isolation rooms. They're happening where children are being restrained and put in isolation blocks or not being fed and not being showered. How close are they to being prisons for teenagers and what's the difference between them and teenage prisons is it just for privileged white kids these kinds of institutions that you write about in trouble absolutely not they're for a wide range of, of families and children um, some of the people i interviewed for troubled had to mortgage their house several times in order to afford the exorbitant tuitions um, i guess the difference between juvenile delinquent centers and these troubled programs is the is the record that is kept on them, right? The idea is to send children away to these therapy programs with the hopes of preventing them having to go into the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, they act more like a pipeline to the criminal justice system than they do act as a barrier for, uh, uh, against the criminal justice system. And having graduated the programs myself, um, I eventually went on into a juvenile delinquent center and found that to be much more preferable than the programs in which I spent 288 days. I couldn't work out in the book, Ken, who were the bad guys? I mean, obviously, the people running these institutions, some of the kids weren't exactly ideal. But of course, the parents and the grandparents also had a responsibility. When it comes to the ethics of Troubled, where does the responsibility lie? That's a great question. It's not, and that's not what I've been asked yet. I think the, the purpose of spreading the responsibility so broadly in the book was, was deliberate. I believe that the issues were not necessarily with the parents needing to send their kid away. I don't think the issues were with the children themselves. And I also don't think that the issues are by and large with the programs. I think it's all of them coalescing together. That's the issue. And that if the family unit, if the child and the family and the grandparents, as you noted, all work together to figure out what the problems were within that home unit, within the, the, the confines of the community, then these programs wouldn't need to exist. Um, then these programs wouldn't have the opportunity to, to uh, detriment some children based on uh, a false belief that they're troubled. I know you've got a, a couple of, of kids. I've got uh, two children, one late teenager, the other in their 20s. And I think any parent who read your book would find it very disturbing because we all know that there are moments when we hate our children. There are moments when we think, these children need, really have problems. They need to be disciplined. And of course, in the America of, of, of the early 21st century, uh, even the sanest children seem to go to therapy. Even the, sa the sanest children uh, take a lot of meds. So how would you place historically uh, your narrative? I mean, you would never have written this in the 1960s or 70s, would you? 
No, and I think that back then we have a historical precedent of sending Americans, at least sending our kids away to grandma or grandpas to live, you know, in Iowa or the Midwest or places removed from what we felt were toxic environments. Um, you know, the reason we have all of these programs now to cater to disrupted teenagers is because um, there are so many issues that we don't even know where to begin with, right? We try to examine the family unit, but we end up um, misguided in our approaches to um, trying to make sure that our children end up okay. Um, we don't know if it's the phones. We don't know if it's what they're eating. We don't know if it's um, the video games necessarily. We thought for many years it was what made them violent. New studies suggest that being addicted to video games isn't necessarily a, a, a tendency toward violence or will engender a, a tendency toward violence anyway. Um, so there's all these things that are changing constantly. But earlier in in, uh, in the 19th century, in the, in the 20th century, there was just alternatives to be able to remove kids from toxic environments and, and give them a place to grow. And that's sort of where these programs grew out of, that idea of separating a child from the, the, the problem area and then letting them flourish in a place where they have no... Um, no issues to combat or issues to deal with. I mean, this issue of children's freedom and growth and development has been an ongoing one throughout modernity, really, since perhaps Jean-Jacques Rousseau talked about the importance of, 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 of wildness. Um, you yourself, your own narrative is one of wildness. You've written about it. At what point does a healthy wildness become a medical or sociological problem? I've struggled with that a lot and how to answer that because, you know, at what point would I have grown out of the misgrants? What point would I have grown out of being troubled? Would it have been the point where something bad had to really happen and then maybe by some sheer luck I learned a lesson and then decided against continuing on that path? Or would it have been a developmental thing where my brain turns over a new leaf and one day decides against um, choosing the more troubled path. And I, and I, in the book, try very hard not to be prescriptive. I try to approach it as a journalist and someone who went to these programs, uh, not as a psychologist, not as a psychotherapist. I don't have any degrees in, in clinical psychology or, or, or behavior psychology. I'm, I'm, I'm strictly a journalist. But what I do know is, is that people who end up sending their children to these programs often get a child that is uh, much worse off when they return. On the other hand, I also know parents who have let their children continue on down disruptive paths despite all signs um, that it's going to end up bad and not send them away to the programs. And those children end up dead or in jail too. Um, there is no right way to parent. I think, I mean, you said it well enough uh, before that there are times when we hate our kids, that we can't stand them, that, that it's difficult and, and monotonous and boring and all these difficult things in, in child rearing. Um, but I'm, I'm not yet convinced that we have the answers. And, and I've made this very clear in the book that um, there are no answers. I have no answers. But what I can say is that these programs are not the best approach. That, of course, is the great strength, I think, in part of your book, Troubled, um, that it isn't a, a polemic. You're not pointing your finger at institutions or even the culture, although many people, of course, come to come to books these days wanting to point fingers, wanting to have somebody to blame, particularly in the age of Trump and, and everything else. Uh, the other thing that I found interesting about the book uh, is, well, it's a very well-written book and it's a very ethical book. You, you cling to the anonymity of your subjects. Um, 
did you talk to any of them about actually revealing who they were? They, uh, well, so when I sat down with all of them to begin with, I made it very clear that um, I was open to discussing how to characterize and frame them in the book, but that I wasn't granting wholesale anonymity to anyone. That just wasn't on the table. It wasn't what I learned uh, having worked for the New York Times for six years, um, having been raised in a traditional journalism environment, um, but that I was always willing to do it. And I understood the needs of uh, people to protect their privacy in large part because these programs, knowing, having, knowing that they were in them or people knowing that these children were in them could later um, uh, keep them from getting a job or ruining their chances at, um, at, at, at later happiness. So I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to threaten that to anyone, but um, there was a discussion later on in the publishing process when uh, we were into the second draft and I reached out to everyone and said, you know, let's have that discussion about how you'd want to be, uh, perceived in the book, um, how you'd like to be labeled. If there are anything that you, any things that you feel might um, give away who you are, if we do decide to grant you anonymity, and um, we ended up deciding on two people who are the main characters who are now um, under pseudonyms, and then two are on the record full names and disclosures, and then some of the tertiary characters are likewise um, a little bit more obscured. How have they reacted to the book? Yeah, I sent uh, copies to them early on so they could see that it was coming out and sort of what to expect in the writing. So they got uh, copies, early press copies months ago. Um, the two characters in the end of the book, Mike and Mark, as I'm sure you're familiar with, are having a little bit of a rough streak near the end there um, mm. in their lives. So when they got the book, they were a little bit less than thrilled with some of the characteristics um, that I pointed to as evidencing their time and programs carrying into their adulthood. But by and large, everyone was very happy. And some of the reception uh, that I've been receiving on the book has been very positive uh, from all sides. The one side, all sides meaning uh, both the therapists who were in the program and, and treating these children and the clients who were being treated in these programs. The one side that I've never heard from, I continue not to hear from, though I interviewed um, one industry leader for the book, is the industry itself. They remain silent. They remain um, upset that these stories are coming out and feel that it's uh, a campaign against their sovereignty, um, that it's uh, something more than just children trying to have their voices heard. And um, I'm, I'm waiting to this day to hear anything from them, to hear their feedback and to hear their perspective, though, though I'm, I'm quite sure I, I know where they stand. Uh, I, I do want to, later in this conversation, I do want to talk about the industry because it, it continues to exist. Some of the worst examples of these places have been shut, but others continue to exist. And it's an above the board uh, uh, operation. Did how, how did you select the uh, the people who appeared in Troubled? Were there some people who were too troubled to be in Troubled? <laughs> I um, interviewed more than 100 people, most of them former clients for the book. And I undertook that. When you first say program. former clients, what do you mean? The children who were in the programs. A lot of times we refer to them as survivors, but uh, for the purpose of the book, I refer to them as clients. So former students or clients who are children who went to these programs. And uh, how did you decide which ones to use and which ones not to write about? So I went about interviewing more than 100 of them and, and just sitting down with them and getting their stories on paper and getting their stories recorded uh, before I went through them again and, and found very similar through lines. A lot of people went to wilderness first, were taken in the middle of the night uh, from their beds by transporters and then taken to a wilderness program and then went to a therapeutic boarding school of some sort and then went to a residential lockdown facility. So that was a common trajectory for a lot of the uh, former clients, A. B, 
a lot of them also came from uh, broken families or or situations at home that were less than ideal that that yeah, started to cause depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD that um, then manifested as uh, drug abuse and alcohol abuse and, and sexual deviance um, that led them to getting sent away. And then lastly, um, a lot of them ended up in these ravished, upsetting, devastating lives that they could not quite figure out what had happened to, to bring them there. They weren't sure why they were still um, struggling despite um, not being in a program or, or, or having gotten some of their stuff together. So having some having gotten sober and still not quite figuring out how to get out of abusive relationships and, and just these little things that uh, reverberated into adulthood. So taking all those threads together, I went back and I said, these four people really sort of exemplify the trajectory of a student in these programs, a client in these programs, and what became of them later. You're a brave man, Ken, I have to say, and an admirable one, because I couldn't have written that book. It would have made me too miserable. How did you cheer yourself up while writing? I didn't. I'm waiting for this promotional period to be over so I can, you know, decompress <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, no, it's, it's a heartbreaking book. You read about these kids who, as you say, are spirited away in the middle of the night. I don't know whether it's legal or illegal. They have no idea, no way of going to the law. And then they find themselves in essentially these prisons which are being paid for by their relatives. It's, it's really a horrifying story. And Andrew, it's like what's really hurtful and what's really sad to me is that the industry has for so long said that the instances of sexual abuse, of, of physical violence are isolated that they have a built-in, you know, um, carte blanche way of putting aside any sort of culpability by saying, oh, well, you know, these are isolated incidents and we fired the counselor who was involved. Or they were troubled, these kids, these clients to begin with, so we did our best, but the therapy didn't take. And ergo, they were bad and they continue to be bad and has nothing to do with us. And it's and it's it's damning because it's it's a fair, it's, it's a fair approach to how you would handle uh, uh, public uh, relations. I get that, but it's just not the case when you have so many children coming out now with stories of abuse, with reckoning with their past, with children who are there now who are ending up dead. We just saw a young man in Michigan, a 16-year-old, die from being restrained. Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. You uh, and, and and the book is a is a is a wonderful book. Got a great review, by the way, in the New York Times. Congratulations on that, by. Robert Kolker, who is, of course, uh, the author of Hidden Valley Road, Inside the, Ma the Mind of an American Family. Curiously enough, that book, which many of our listeners and, and viewers will be familiar with, uh, is about the most mentally ill family in America, a very all-American family who 50% of them turned out to be insane. Um, and one of the things in that narrative, I know you know the book, is that the mother ignored their insanity. One of the brothers turned out to have, have, have raped two, two, two of the sisters. Um, is Kolka's Hidden Valley Road, is it the best argument in favor of these camps that you describe in your book? After all, if, if the parents had come to terms with the insanity of their kids, surely the history of that family would have been more cheerful. It wouldn't have been cheerful, but it might have been a little better. Well, I, I won't prescribe what I think is good or bad, but I will say that we had mentioned earlier, there's a point in parenting when you hate and loathe your children. And I think there's the opposite of that as well. The, the flip side, which is there are times when you love them 
despite their biggest flaws, despite all the warning signs to the contrary, despite that the fact that they might be headed down a path, a road that could end up terrible, not for them, not for you, but for a third party who has nothing to do with your family relations. Um, and I think that's 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 just as blinding as uh, as hate or or frustration or um, unsuredness about how to uh, pull a child through. Uh, you um, you you write a lot in the book about drugs and substance abuse. Uh, earlier this week, we had Dr. Carl Hart on the show, uh, arguing in favor of drug use. Drug use, of course, for grown-ups. But Hart, I think, is an example of somebody who sees state policy on drugs to be inconsistent and wrong. How central were illegal, quote unquote, illegal drugs in the descent of these kids? Uh, is it alcohol? Is it marijuana? Is it harder drugs? I think it was central to most of their um, most of what led them away to these programs to begin with. The recreational marijuana use, the perhaps painkiller use at a party or the um, psycho uh, psychosyllabin mushrooms or any other number of, um, and, you know, uh, mind altering drugs that generally are uh, the, um, the way for many college students to, 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 to enjoy their, their four years. Um, and I convinced that it was a time of experimentation because most of the children that I spoke to who have left the programs many years later, they don't do drugs anymore. They sometimes drink a little, sometimes they smoke some marijuana, but they weren't using the way they were as a teenager. And I, I think that's just a, a way of people growing up. I will say that I think some of the studies coming out now about um, the benefits of, um, what is it, not LSD, of, um, of, of these harder methamphetamines to yeah. treat. We, we talked a little bit about that, yeah. yeah that's, that's phenomenal. And, and again, the disparity between the states and how we all handle um, federal law with, with marijuana, and yet there are still people locked up for it. I mean, it's, it's, it's disparate, and it doesn't make any sense at this point. Uh, Hart's argument is, as Americans, we all have a right to happiness. Uh, certainly, the kids you describe in your book uh, and in that industry seem to have, if there's one thing missing from their lives for one reason or another, it's happiness. Ken, you're also a war correspondent. You've done a lot of work in, um, in Iraq. Uh, I had uh, a guy called Biggio on the show, wrote a book about his experience in Iraq and the American experience in Iraq. Reading your book reminded me a little bit about warfare and fighting. Uh, how, how do you connect these two sides of your career as an ex-war correspondent and as someone now focused on troubled youth? Is there a connection? I actually got into the war correspondence while I was working on Troubled. So there's a there's a shift into Middle East correspondence that I'm currently in now, and that's that's where my focus is. Um, this Troubled project was a was a was a latent thing from uh, my past years, which I was trying to get out desperately, in, in large part because people didn't believe that this was a story at all. Um, they felt like it wasn't necessarily representative of an industry, but perhaps just a few few children. So it was an uphill battle to get. Um, the, the the attention to this that it deserved. And in the meanwhile, I picked up uh, foreign correspondence. And I guess the way I connected is that I have a, I have a lot of empathy for some of the, the people that end up becoming bad baddies, the people that end up becoming the, the, the enemy. Um, and I think that everyone deserves a voice. And I think that everyone has a story of how they got there. Um, and the story is generally more interesting than, than the end product. Um, we've seen time again in the Middle East that our enemies become our allies overnight. And then 10 years later, there are our enemies again. 
And then 10 years after that, they're our allies again. Well, that's sort of Orwellian in American foreign policy. We wake up right. one morning and, you know, the Iraqis yeah. are the good guys or the bad guys, and the same with the, the Amanis and the, uh, and, the, and the Baghdadis and all the rest of it. So. Right. And so, so then we see troubled teens and we say, look, you're troubled teen. You're, you're, you're done for life. You're, you're always going to be bad unless you decide to turn good. You need to be sober now at 15 for the rest of your life because you can't handle drugs clearly. I mean, that's just not the reality of how people and the plasticity of the brain works, right? We evolve over time. And um, to then just be so hardliner on how we treat these children, I think, is more damaging to them than uh, the drugs that they're doing. Well, if there is one bad guy in the book, un un unashamedly, it is um, it is these institutions that some of which remain open, some of which are now closed, like the Adirondack Leadership Expedition. Here's a, uh, a headline about its closing. Another one was the Academy at Ivy Ridge. These are all very controversial. But as you said, uh, this industry still exists. It's the National Association of therapeutic schools. Uh, it's very kosher. It looks very kosher from the NATSAP website. What is the state of the industry, Ken? It's blossoming from what I'm, from what I'm told. Uh, state legislators have, have told me in private that um, the industry has seen a real boom since the, uh, the, the recession, um, that more and more parents are looking for reasons to send their children away in large part because it's there's- COVID. I mean, I would imagine COVID would be the ideal thing for these parents. I mean, it's 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 very hard for them to have the kid at home now all the time. Um, it's very hard for them to uh, see him or her or their son or daughter in front of a computer time and time and time again. Um, and I've gotten calls from parents who are asking me what programs to send their kids to in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm I, and I think if you can't figure out your problems at home now, when you're forced to to sort of cohabitate and 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 figure things out, then I don't know if 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 this is the program that's right for anyone. Um, but that, that, that comes back to, I mean, for a parent who's watching this, who does in their mind have a troubled child, right? Should they avoid at all costs the the the, the, the NatSap uh, universe, the ecosystem? Yeah, the, the NatSap has just recently issued a statement to programs in Utah to keep quiet, and if an investigator comes looking, um, have them contact the legal team, because we don't want them uh, having a witch hunt taken out on these programs, despite um, the state having the ability to be able to uh, investigate these programs and being told by some regular, non-regulatory, not even accrediting body, some just um, a conglomerate saying, don't do that, don't listen to the state authority. Um, I think that the, the, the best way forward for any parent who's listening is the community-based approach. If there's a community hospital, if there's a local outpatient program, if there's a, a, a group therapy session that is local to you and your family, that's the best way. That's the best way forward because there are checks and balances in place um, in these programs that are more local, that are state-funded, for you to have more transparency about what's happening to your children and to be part of the, the therapy with your child. Um, that's the most needed aspect of this is the the parental component. Um, they, they offer that in some of these programs as a sort of um, e-learning opportunity for parents to chime in with their own therapy sessions, but the, they really need to be one in the same. Yeah, when you look through this uh, NatSAP website, for those people watching, you'll see very glossy, well put together images about the association, their values, their ethical principles, blah, blah. You're saying all oh, that's a bit of a fraud and that that should be entirely avoided. Do you think that NATSAP should be shut down? 
I'm, I don't think anything should be shut down or anything should be reopened. I think things need to have a closer look taken in. And, uh, people need to look closer at these things and state authorities are the deciding factors, not me. I shed light on something and then someone else will have to move in and make a deciding factor. What I can say is that NATSAT for many years has has listed itself as an accrediting body. People are members of this place, but they don't have any really regulatory power. They don't investigate the programs themselves. They don't hold the, the programs to accountability. Um, they they are a loose loose body that holds holds to get holds um, like conferences every every few months. Um, that's not the type of oversight we need. I think we see the same thing with the Outdoor Behavioral Health Council. Um, they fund all of the studies for the wilderness programs and then issue statements about how beneficial this is for children uh, to spend therapy yeah. in, in the wilderness. But it's being funded by the same programs. It's, which it's, it's like the entire American medical system seems to be corrupted uh, by that. And of course, these images are very seductive. So anyone watching, be very wary of NATSAP. Uh, perhaps uh, instead of sending the kids away, Ken, we should be sending the parents away. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I think uh, not Not only be wary of these programs, I think if a insurance provider is not willing to cover a treatment for your, your son or daughter, I would take that as a major warning sign. If they're saying that this is non-evidence-based treatment and we don't cover that, then that should be your first clue that there should be other options you, you should consider. Well, uh, Kenneth R. Rosen's Troubled, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs is really a central reading for not only parents and children, but anyone who's, who's, who's concerned with this mistreatment of children and the way in which for-profit marketing groups are taking advantage of it. Ken, I know you are stuck, if that's the right word, in Northern Italy at the moment. You're talking to me from Milan, but you live uh, an hour south of Venice, so uh, you're rather fortunate, I guess, in some ways to be spending uh, COVID, the early part of 2021 in, in Northern Italy. I wish I was there. I'm in California. Uh, what else should people be reading, though, in addition to, to your wonderful new book, Troubled? I have a, a piece out this week on LitHub that chronicles some of the books I use. Speak of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I modeled uh, Troubled After. I think um, Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns is a, is a really great read, um, sort of looking at the author's own uh, stake in uh, the Great Migration. And Maria Konnikova's The Biggest Bluff is, is, a, is, a, is a book about how she, um, a reporter for The New Yorker, ended up becoming a, an incredibly good poker player um, just by learning and uh, advancing through different levels of of the of the game um and that sort of experiential reporting is a lot of what i do uh, both in uh, troubled and also in my middle east reporting well kenneth r rosen i want to thank you so much for uh for coming onto the show spending some of your time in italy go out back on the streets i know they're not crowded but i'm sure you're better off on the streets of italy than you are on the streets of the united states at the moment i want to wish you a very happy and above all else healthy 2021 and uh, I will look forward to having you on your show, on the show again when you have a new book or, or a new series of articles out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Have a good one. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com 
where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.